Hello everyone, welcome to Across the Common Line, a KCL Space podcast where we talk all things space. Today we have a very special guest with us, Thomas Monroe O'Brien. Thomas is uh, a PhD student uh, at University of Southampton. He's recently finished his integrated master's also at University of Southampton in 2021, where he worked in chemical and electrical propulsion systems and presented his work on miniature Hall effect thrusters, which he did in his BSc thesis at the Space Propulsion Conference 2021 uh, last March. Uh, he's, he's continuing his studies at uh, Southampton University and well, we're glad to have you. Thank you so much for taking your time out today, Thomas. Uh, that's not right. Thank you for having me. Right. Hello, Thomas. So how are you doing? What have you been up to? Um, I'm very good. I just sort of finished up for this year. Um, we finished that with quite um, quite a good thing. I can't particularly um, show you guys anything, so I'm a little hesitant to say. But um, we tested a large hole thruster this um, like last week, I think it was. So the hole thruster is from a company that's working with Southampton under what's called a sprint project. And it's effectively this sort of, um, well, the Sprint is a government funded thing that helps space startups in the UK. And I think until recently, they were only partnered with Southampton. And I think they've recently partnered with uh, several other unions, I think like Bristol, Bath and some others. Um, but they basically have asked us to help them test this very large hole thruster they've designed. Um, and it, I th- I'd be hesitant to to put my name to the statement but i think it's it's probably one of the largest ones in europe depending on if you include russia in that so it's um a 12 kilowatt hall thruster um give or take i think the design point but we only and ran it up to one kilowatt so it wasn't particularly impressive numbers what's the average kind of size of a hole thruster i'd say the most common is about one to two kilowatts um oh so this one is like 10 times more. 10 times more, yeah. It's sort of something that you'd maybe expect on an interplanetary vessel or a very, very big geostationary satellite. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I tested that and that was very fun. It was a big, big glowing light bulb. Um, not, not too much beyond that, really, because we, we haven't got a thrust stand powerful enough at the moment to measure anything from it. So I didn't take too much readings. And uh, what actually involves testing a thruster? Yeah, so um, there's like several things that go into it, but with hull thrusters, one of their main appeals, and um, if anyone doesn't know what a hull thruster is, it's a form of electric propulsion, and it's currently, I think in the last few years, it's become the most flown type of electric propulsion in space. So previously it was the resistor jet, which is just, you put hot gas over, or you put cold gas over a heating element, and it just makes it really hot. You put that through a nozzle. So that's the most simplest form. That was flown in space forever. Hull thrusters have just taken over because Elon Musk. So it's kind of a, a fake win for hull thrusters because one company's whim to put 66,000 satellites in space has kind of pushed our numbers up as a research field. Uh, but the hull thrusters, the reason why they're so attractive is because they're very, very simple. Um, to get them to run, you basically just need one voltage uh, cathode and a f- you know, propellant. Uh, especially if you're using permanent magnets. So um, at Southampton, we have a very, very large vacuum chamber. It's the biggest one in academia 
in the UK. And so I put that, this main thruster, I post, um, mount it somewhere in the chamber, pointing at a beam dump, which is just, um, I think in our case, it's a big, big sheets of graphite. Um, we feed in some propellant. In this case, we're using xenon, which is incredibly, it's what's most used in space because it's very, very good as a propellant in space, but it's very expensive. So we're looking at using different propellants as often as we can, because I think it's, yeah, it's also, it's not just expensive, it's also a very volatile um, price because it's, its production is linked to other markets and no one just makes xenon. So we set this up. Um, I hook up the power to the anode, power to the cathode, and just hit a bunch of switches, and it turns on. It's a big, it, yeah, effectively, it's a big light bulb that spits out atoms at approximately 10 kilometers a second. Not bad for a light bulb. No, yeah, it's pretty good for a light bulb, and that's on the low end of things, and so especially for electric propulsion. It's 10 times bigger, but definitely the low end of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 10 kilometers a second, pff, rookie numbers. Yeah. And we wanted to ask you, like, what got you interested into this topic and, like, your academic journey, like, what pushed you into doing a PhD in that topic? Did you have any, like, professor that you, that, like, specifically helped you or anything? Yeah, so it was kind of, um, I like propulsion as a concept. Just, I think it's cool. I, I liked rockets. I like the big fireball putting stuff in space. And I remember in my second year, we had this lecturer, um, Angelo Grubazitz, who was incredible. Um, he's really enthusiastic about his subject. I remember sitting in one of his lectures thinking, I could really do this. I'd, I'd be really interested in doing rockets and, you know, but I want to do research. I don't want to just be joining a company that makes, I don't want to be shaving, you know, 0.5% efficiency off someone's number. That's kind of what I was thinking. Um, but as a species, we know chemical rockets really well. Like we've been doing this since the seventies and because they're the backbone of ICBMs, there's been a huge amount of money poured into this research. Um, so we, yeah, we, we know how to make rockets go up. We know how to put stuff in space. It's a pretty well-treaded field. I remember him talking about um, electric propulsion. And again, he mentioned uh, gridded iron thrusters, which are, um, was what he had worked on when he was at ESA. So he worked on the Bepi Colombo mission. They have a very big uh, gridded iron thruster for that, which is going to Mercury. I think it's, been, it's in transit at the moment. So he'd done that. And it's telling us about it. And that's, again, a relatively well understood field. Gridded iron thrusters as a research topic, pretty understood. He says Holofet thrusters, they're incredibly simple, designed by, first, uh, sort of first done by the Russians. Um, so to give you some idea of how, how big the disparity was. So this is all Cold War era. The first Holofet thruster flown was by the Russians in, a, I think it's like 65. They do a test mission in 1965. The first American Holofet thruster in space is 2004. This is how little the West was interested in this field, as well as how much of this research happened behind the Iron Curtain, which I found quite interesting. And I went, you know, I can do that. I want to go do that. I want to go do some research. But also, so, so sorry, um, think back. He was mentioning his holofet thrusters are incredibly simple to build. 
like they are very few components you have one charged plate you have a channel and that you you create this discharge in that channel and then that's everything happens in there but the physics behind it the plasma physics involved are so complex we could, we don't understand what's happening at the moment so if you, even if you look at the most um high level simulations we have most of them will still have um, a function in it that just deletes electrons because we don't know where they go and we have no physical understanding of why electrons vanish in hall effect thrusters like they do so even in our like i think a lot of this research happens in spain uh, a lot of even like the highest level research of it are still trying to probe these questions of like where are these electrons going we don't know we don't know what's happening to them we don't know where they're going um but yeah i found that very interesting and i went yeah I, I really want to do this and i was in my second year and i don't know how it is at other universities for engineering but at southampton it's your third year two of your modules was taken up by an individual project so i think i think it's pretty common for this to be done it's basically your bachelor's thesis is these two two modules worth of work and it's usually done that they'll propose like academics will put a big list out and you kind of pick some and you is a lottery but you can also self-propose which just means you go to an academic with an idea so i basically went through southampton's directory put in electric propulsion took the first name went to his office and went i want to do this and he was like okay um that's a terrible idea whatever idea i think i, I went oh let's do it was like plume diagnostics of a centrally uh, mounted cathode. And he was like, that's awful. That's a terrible idea. We're not doing that. You can do this instead though. And I did that. And then that, uh, that's where I really was like, I fell in love with research as a concept, fell in love with all of the thrusters and doing sort of practical as well as um, non-practical research. I kind of just haven't stopped working on this since. It's been sort of one project for about three years now. Just a just a surprise, just a small secret from two physics people on the call. We don't know what happens to the electrons either. Yeah, no one knows. It's crazy. And the thing which I find very interesting about Hall effect thrusters, especially simulations, um, is that well, um, so just give you a little bit more background. What happens? You kind of have this. You you create a plasma that's just it's quasi neutral. So on the large scale, it's not. There's no charge. But if you look at it really close, there's charge which basically means that you have trapped electrons with charged atoms moving through it continuously. And that's sort of how you're, that's your moving propellant. That's where your mass ejection is coming from, is that flow of um, positively charged things. But because everything's charged and everything's accelerated by fields, so like electric fields and magnetic fields, the same potential is applied to electrons and positively charged ions. Electrons are effectively massless. So you apply any kind of force, and now they're going at relativistic speeds. But that's, yeah, that's really hard to simulate because they're going really, really fast. But the thing you're also interested in, so you can't cut corners. So if you wanted to just simulate high-speed electrons, that's very easy. The problem is you need to simulate them interacting with low-speed, comparatively, ions. So you have these two regimes, which are incredibly, you know, seven orders of magnitude apart, of velocities and you need them they are massively coupled uh, so that's something i find really really interesting especially i don't do simulation stuff i can possibly uh comment much beyond how i think it's very interesting 
But that's right. There's a lot of stuff in Hall's electrons. But yeah, electrons just vanish sometimes and you just call it Bohm diffusion and don't worry about it. Isn't this half of physics where you just apply a simplification that suits uh, reality to your method and call it yeah. a day? We, so that's the problem is we've done that for like the last 40 years. I say we. Um, other researchers have done this. Um, I am the junior researcher in this. Uh, it's kind of getting to the point where we're Oh, but let's really just figure this out. Because um, our models, are, they're good. And especially because especially a lot of them rely on empirical data. So um, the best way to design a Hall effect thruster at the moment is to just take a database of other Hall effect thrusters that have been put in space. And you kind of just try to draw correlations between their sizing. Because you, know, you pick a bunch of ones you like and say, I want mine to operate around as well as these do. That only works when your sample data coincides with the sort of the general area you want to be in. So all Hall effect thrusters from before probably the 2000s are about a kilowatt. If you want to start applying those and designing them for CubeSats, that scaling breaks down really fast. So if you want to make a 100 watt thruster based solely on like photographic scaling from kilowatt range, it's not going to work all falls apart so you need to better understand the the physics going on to be able to make better thrusters um, and it's becoming an incredibly competitive field as well with commercialization um, so there's, a, there's a lot of pressure in it i think yeah. it's a good field and for Sorry. our yeah, for our listeners can you explain a little bit like uh more of what uh whole effect thrusters like are and how do you use them in your work and in the industry, and how does that relate to uh, the different startups you work with? Okay, yeah. Um, so a Hall effect thruster, in the sort of the simplest explanation, is we take an electric field, um, but we produce at the anode in sort of a trough. So we usually think of a donut shape. It's called an annulus, but it's like an inverse of a donut. It's just a cutout of a trough that goes in a circle. At the base of that, we put an anode, which is just a piece of metal that we charge up to a potential. Usually it's about 300 volts. Um, and then we also apply perpendicular to the electric field we've produced at a magnetic field. Um, and this produces sort of this E cross B. And what happens when you have charged particles in an E cross B is they sort of spiral. So if we pick our charge at our anode and our electric field strength correctly, we can create this sort of, again, like a donut is the best way I can think of it, of confined electrons because they, due to their masslessness, are much easier to confine while also completely unimpeding ions that can move through this like charged zone. And that's how we form this um, plasma. So we, we form this plasma by collecting electrons and they also flow to the anode eventually, but like overall, we have a big cloud of electrons and we just push atoms through it. Um, we push neutral propellant, which is usually xenon. Um, that goes through and it gets hit by the electrons. And we use primarily um, electron impact ionization, which is the, this very simple form of it. And then the second they're ionized, they start being accelerated by the local potential of the plasma. Um, so you, you're just accelerating them. And it's all of this, and there's a lot of complex physics happening in this you know, plasma donut. 
which is very interesting. But so that that's the very short of it is we create a donut light bulb and it spits out atoms at about you know ten to twenty kilometers a second. Um, so I assume like most people listening, as well as I assume you guys have played like KSP. A little bit. So you, yeah. are you familiar with the concepts of what specific impulse is? So specific impulse is, um, for those who don't know, it's a value that is kind of made up and it's a way to sort of uh, um, interrogate the efficiency of a system. So for per kilogram of mass, what kind of velocities is it getting to? So a high specific impulse means you, your ejection speed of your propellant is really high. Um, so for like launch vehicles, I think the highest you can get, and it's usually very dependent on the energy you put in. So in launch vehicles, you're using chemical stuff. So you're limited by the chemical energy of the bonds. So I think your specific impulse limit, I think using hydrogen and oxygen, if it was 100% stoichiometric and 100% efficient, you can get like 310 seconds, 310 seconds of ISP. It's measured in seconds for reasons that are mostly due to imperial numbers in the States but we measure it in seconds. Um, with electric propulsion, you can get to thousands of seconds of ISP, which usually comes with a significant drop in the thrust producible. So launch vehicles, you need kilonewtons to push stuff into space. Once you're there, um, there's nothing stopping you. Like You don't need to worry about air resistance. You don't need to worry about fighting gravity constantly. You're in space. The difference is time. So if I took a launch vehicle... Um, motor to try to launch something from low Earth orbit to the moon, I could get it to the moon much quicker using that. I could take almost a direct path, just use a, um, a Hoffman transfer, which is you just sort of burn until you're sort of like aligned with it. With electric propulsion, you'd apply this minuscule force, but you could apply it for about seven years and you would end up at the same place, but you would have the amount of propellant used in that journey probably for the electric propulsion would be in, on the order of tens of kilograms. Whereas for the chemical one, it would be on the order of hundreds of tons. So your end mass to where you want to be is a lot better with electric propulsion. And so that's usually the thing that's making you money. So that's why we look at it a lot. So, you know, you want as much of your final instrument mass to end up where you want it to be. And using chemical, it's not very efficient. And this is why we care. So that's, that's why, um, one people look into electric propulsion in the first place that's why the interest is so high so it allows us to get around places as long as you've got the time yeah it allows you to get there very efficiently um but a lot of my research just involves testing thrusters i've built so far um and sort of trying to correlate the results i get i'm literally in the first three months of my phd i haven't done any real research of my own for this so far what I have done is for my bachelor's thesis on Hall Effect Thrusters is I, I designed and manufactured a um, miniature ma magnetically shielded thruster. And I ran that quite a lot. Um, so that's, that's a lot of what I do. Uh, that's very fun. Um, the research I've done, though, has been testing this small Hall Effect Thruster that I designed and built in my third year. They're relatively simple. So again, it took a few months to figure out the general scaling stuff. Um, and I think the most impressive thing about this is it happened under COVID. So like my second semester while doing all this was the outbreak. Um, 
but I did I, I tested it quite extensively over that summer as well as this summer so I've tested it on five propellants I think yeah five propellants which is uh, relatively unique and I've also tested it on some very novel propellants compared to other uh, thrusters so most if not all electric propulsion in, in space generally runs on xenon this is for several reasons xenon is is very uh, unreactive to noble gas you can't really go wrong with it um it's also the most massive atom that is noble that's easy to get hold of and like you can ionize it really easily so being large gives it several benefits one the outer electrons are further away from the center easier to ionize but also because the atom itself is heavier or more massive when you accelerate it under the same potential so if you accelerate anything under the same potential you're giving it sort of similar energies so if it's half the mass it will be um, four times the velocity because of it's a square root it's e equals a half mv squared so if you if you try you give it the same energy your mass is half your velocity changes uh no sorry proportional to like the square root that's fine so you want high thrust usually you can get you know insane specific impulse you can get like twenty thousand seconds specific impulse but you're getting no thrust so it's kind of this sort of catch 22 of um if you want your engine to be 100 efficient you just don't turn it on um so it's one of those things it's like yeah you can get these very very high efficiencies you just don't get any thrust from it and that's useless so it's a lot of this balancing act of getting enough thrust while still maintaining that desirable efficiency um but also so when you so you know xenon's incredibly expensive i think a um i have this i think it's 22 liters at 25 bar it's a small cylinder it's about yay big can you see that but yeah big small cylinder like the ones people have if they have like medical issues they have like a little tank of oxygen with them about that size that of xenon i think is about ten thousand pounds if you were to get the same one of krypton which is what i did because I, I bought two um that's about 80 pounds krypton is only half as massive so it, it, you're kind of like it's going well i can save especially if you're doing cubesats so CubeSats, everything's about shaving a little bit of cost off because you, you want the smallest platform ever. If I can get you know, maybe a quarter of the thrust from something that is a tenth of the price, you know, that's a completely reasonable um, sort of exchange. So there's been a lot of research in recent years in alternative propellants. And so that's what I focused on. Um, so I can kind of show, I got some pictures and let me, I'll start, I'll see if I can share my screen. Oh, I have the host is disabled participant screen sharing. So I try this one more time. Uh, there we go. Thank you very much. Let me know when that's come through. Okay, so this is a image of my whole flat thruster. So you can kind of see it here. Um, and this sort of object here is the cathode and it's all on this frame. And that's the, the thrust down. So it's basically, it's a thing we put it on that can measure the thrust. The thrust it produces is approximately, I think, especially under the xenon, I'd say about five millinewtons. So this is the same amount of force that if you were to take a, an A4 piece of paper and put it on your hand, 
the force that applies on your hand is what this is creating. It's really small, so you need quite sensitive things to measure it. And you can kind of see here, it's got this it's the little plume, the light bulb, it's accelerating, it's, it's very fun. That's xenon. Um, it's, and, this is, and this is Krypton, so run out of Krypton as well. You can kind of see this is, uh, xenon's very blue, Krypton's more of a purpley hue, purpley pink. Um, and I think the performance is does drop off quite a lot. So moving from xenon to anything else, you're expecting less performance. There's a lot of efficiency losses, but this thruster was designed for Krypton. So it's, it's not too bad on Krypton, if I don't say so myself. Uh, so same thruster, same setup, same everything. This is it running on Argon. So Argon again. So if we, we're literally just moving down the noble gases. So it's, it's you know, Xenon, Krypton, Argon. I think it's Neon and then I don't know if helium or hydrogen counts as a noble gas, but uh, that column. Um, so again, it's a, a different color. I quite like argon as a color. It's a good, it's a good color, good plasma. They all look very good. They always look very more impressive in person, which is the, the worst thing because it's hard to take pictures of them. But so the other thing is when you design a Holfet thruster, you're kind of, there is an optimal amount of atoms you want at a time. So you have this neutral number density thing that you want, and it's kind of like you want a certain amount of atoms kicking around at a time for it to efficiently ionize. If I half the mass of my propellant to have that optimal number of atoms, I literally have a lower mass flow rate, which means I have a worse thrust because your mass flow rate is directly proportional to thrust because you're literally putting in less propellant. So it's, you can't, and they weighs less, so it's, it, you kind of end up with these, again, you need these bigger bigger channels for these smaller propellants. Um, and now we're getting to the fun ones. So this is neon, which is personally my favorite. Bright, bright red, really bright, and also awful, awful propellant. I would not recommend anyone work with it. It was so hard to ionize. Um, even here, this isn't, so it, you can see it's so much more massive. It's so much brighter. And that's because this is running at about probably like 1.5 kilowatts when this thrust is designed for 100 Watts, but I had to run it at such a high power to get it to ignite. And the way I did this is I would run it on Xenon first, and then you know, I'd switch the propellant lines over to neon and start putting out neon. So it's, it's so hard to ionize. And then here's the other one. This is nitrogen, so it's N2 nitrogen as well. Um, and the thing which I found very interesting about nitrogen is it's diatomic nitrogen is about a similar mass to argon. So you can kind of treat it like argon and the efficiency thrust and everything about the thruster operated about the same as if it was on argon. But again, like nitrogen is an order of magnitude cheaper. It's everywhere. It's like the most abundant gas. 70% of the atmosphere is, is nitrogen. Um, so it's, I think there's quite a lot of promise in nitrogen, especially people who do air breathing um, propulsion. So I know of a couple, one of them who's in the working with us at the moment. So you kind of got that. I think I got, I prepped this, uh, there we go. So I don't know if you guys get the audio. 
But so this is um, an under video shot of the thruster. And this is operating on Xenon at the moment. And what you just saw is it go from um, a glow discharge or a light bulb discharge to an accelerating plasma. So now you've got this sort of needle shape kind of um, plume. And I don't think I, it doesn't exist like this for long. So it gets really bright and it goes out. And you can see that's the channel there is glowing because it was really hot. Shouldn't do that. Uh, this is this is because I'm running it really, really hard and it breaks shortly after this. Again, you can see it's, it starts with this, this you know, small light bulb glow discharge. Once I start you know, getting all the dials incorrect, it'll switch over to an accelerating. But this is a test where I was initially running it on xenon and then I start running it on nitrogen. So you can see it starts getting more and more red. It's really bright because the camera just can't really adjust. And it goes out again. So you can kind of understand why I really didn't like neon because it would just constantly go out and I would have it lit for maybe about a few seconds at a time before it went out. And I think during these testing, I don't know if I get it back on again, you kind of see uh, it's trying to light here. It's just not having it. So they can be a little tricky, especially if you're running them far outside of the design um, points. But yeah, I think shortly after this video was taken, I melt the large electromagnet inside the thruster, which I took as a, I take as a bad, badge of pride. But yeah, I'll stop sharing that. But yeah, so that's what I, that's the whole of that thruster research I've been doing. Uh, the stuff which I find very, very interesting. This is incredible, seriously. <laughs> it's a big light bulb at the end of the day, but I, I enjoy it. Yeah, but you can say that about anything. What is a intercontinental ballistic missile? A big candle. It is a big candle um, yeah. with a, uh, <laughs> a big surprise yeah. at the end. <laughs> yeah, not a Christmas one. Mm. Talking of ICBMs, though, I did work a bit on have you guys ever heard of a rotating detonation engine yeah, a little bit um so a rotating detonation is funny enough kind of a similar concept almost to a hall effect thruster where you have this annulus which is a, a thin donut and you use a detonation wave for combustion instead of a flame so a normal flame i think the technical term is a deflagration which means the flame itself is propagated by thermal radiation so like in the gas on the micro level the atoms only you know burn or you know mix together because it's hot in a detonation what happens is you have a pressure wave that just forces the particles together and then they react and apparently a detonation apparently is a far more efficient version of a deflagration um and it's something that you, know, you try to use to create that and i did work a bit on the miniature rotating detonation engine we have at Southampton, which I think was the first in Europe to be done, at least on the scale they did. I know the Germany do a lot of research into rotating detonation engines. And that was the project which I um, happenstantly blew up our, our propulsion lab with. Of our very fun. Now that part I like to hear. <laughs> You know, the, 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 okay, so I don't know. I might have some images of this one as well. I did. 
uh, yeah, so I didn't work. So it was, was for my master's thesis, which was a group design project. So similar to the individual design project, but again, you work as a group. And I think the academic focus is less on novelty and less on something important scientifically and more on trying to emulate a corporate environment and more of like, you know, you need to have checks and balances. If someone goes, why have you done this in your design? You need to have some document to back it up. That's the focus. And um, we designed as a group to do a detonation tube, which is just, it's, a, it's very, what it says on the tin, it is a long tube that you detonate and it's supposed to stay inside the tube sometimes it doesn't and when that happens it's a little bit uh explosive so again I'll, I'll share this and i got so that's an image of the tube post detonation uh, so this whole thing is, is about four meters long which is, is incredibly short for a detonation tube usually they're about 20 to 40 meters long and much bigger and we were trying some novel novel concepts to try to get them shorter but this is what we did and this used to be um, a 30 millimeter thick acrylic window and now it's you can see it down at the bottom there it's distributed on the floor where it shouldn't be and i think do i have the video of, of it exploding yeah, i do so i don't know if you have audio again this is the the detonation tube in all the angles we had of its glory blowing up the entire that's beautiful uh, did you guys get the audio on that or no 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 that's a shame actually i might be if i share the um i'll share the application because that works doesn't it oh because uh when you share screen there's a there's an option at the bottom with sound like share with sound i think that's where oh do i need to do that sorry yeah, when you when you're sharing screen at the bottom at last, share screen with with audio. Okay, let's let's try this one more time. So share screen. Aha! I found it. Rolly wanted to see something blow up. There we go. Oh, it's the third time. <laughs> oh, the sound is good. Totally it's a good it. sound. It's it has a good ring to it. Yeah, uh, um, I like it because it, but, so yeah, we detonated that and we dented the the detonation proof door or the blast proof door so uh, that was good fun that so yeah fun that, that's also quite fun um bit of research we did okay but the idea of that the whole apparatus is is designed to sort of with supposed to be making these um ethylene and atmosphere mixes uh, ethylene's just a hydrocarbon but you would use as a propellant in these things. And the problem with RDEs, rotating detonation engine, is that the detonation itself, like the, the front of it, are really unstable. So one, you'd start, you'd start one in your sort of your annulus, and it would like to it creates a second one or a third one or a fourth one. And then sometimes they'll chase each other around the channel and they'll catch up to each other and then they'll both go out. And it's like it's actually a really hard thing keeping them going. So we're trying to investigate detonation wave uh, characteristics to sort of feed that back into uh, simulations where that can be used to help to design them to make them more stable. Nice. Um, right. So um, I think at the start of the discussion, you mentioned how 
uh, Elon Musk and with reusable rockets and stuff, the industry and the research has just taken off all of a sudden. So, um, like, um, can you can you tell us a little more about like what what launch vehicle research essentially is, how it's going now, and and what are the new kinds of inventions and new discoveries that are taking place in the field? Yeah, so I know of a lot of startups. Most of them are in electric propulsion, most because it's kind of to to tackle um, launch vehicles. You need to be an Elon Musk. You need to have a lot of money backing you up. You need because it just costs so much. So you know, but that I think that market is pretty stable because you've got you know, um, oh, I can't remember their name now, but the New Zealand guys, uh, is it Electron Rocket? Um, you've got SpaceX, you've got Ariane Space, you've got NASA, you've got Roscosmos, India. They're all they're pretty solid, and usually most of them are backed by government, which is pretty hard to challenge because governments can cut corners that companies cannot because they don't pay tax because they're a government. <laughs> but so yeah, a lot of it's in electric propulsion, which is a lot. It's in the in space. So once you're already up there. Um, and the market that's really blown up is France. They have, uh, I think, about five serious contenders for sort of winning this market. Uh, there's there's um, Thrust Me, which is a spin-off from... It's a fun name for English speakers, but it's um, a spin-out from a university outside of Paris. I think it's, uh, so it's Ecole Polytechnique. Um, I think another one came out of there. I think there's, there's Impulsion. And they do FEEP and electrospray stuff, which is a little bit more complex, but it's very high precision thrust, very low though. So they're, they're looking at more about 3,000 seconds, but like micro newtons of thrust. So about an order of magnitude less than all of that thrusters could, could manage. Um, so the people who are working in the UK, there's Pulsar Fusion. They're the guys who have helped build this large hall thruster. They're doing a lot of work in, in electric propulsion for, for Hall of Fame thrusters as well as hybrid propulsion. So they're doing stuff with, that's a launch vehicle, but it gets more sat focused. Um, but yeah, there's, there is a lot of like exotrails. That's another French one. Uh, I think they work out of um, south of France, Mazé area. Um, and they're also very big with Kness and all, all of those research institutes. I think... I know JAXA, they do a lot of electric propulsion stuff, but they're not like a company. They're not trying to make a market. They're just doing what they do. But yeah, there's, there's a, it's a very interesting time at the moment because a lot of, especially Hall of Fame thrusters. So for the last 20, 30 years, electric propulsion and Hall of Fame thrusters has been primarily in research space. Universities did it. Space agencies did it. That's the only people who could afford to do it because they would turn around and say, well, I want this. And now with the CubeSat explosions, you know, there's just there's so much industry happening at the moment. Hall of Fame thrusters have gone through this funny transition from being quite, um, you know, an academic pursuit to being a very financial pursuit. That, you know, the research being done on them is being done by private entities, and they're not sharing their research data as much because it gives them a, an edge in the market. So this is kind of a bit of an interesting uh, dynamic change which I think will have an impact in the, in the next few years. Well, I, think, I think it's very interesting. And it's, it's a very good time to be an, an electric propulsion researcher. 
any any novelties that may have come out of it in the recent times that that may be yeah, huge ones um i know thrust me they just published a nature paper which one is is a novelty in itself uh, they're notoriously hard to publish in nature they built a tiny one u so do you know what a u is in the context of space so cubesat they are measured in u's which is unit of space and i think it's 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters is one u okay so most cubesats are about six u three u that's pretty standard um, and so you make, if you're a company that sells these components, you try want your component to be one U or two U because it just fits into the CubeSat body. Like it just fits, it's plug and play kind of the way it works. They created this one U, um, so 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters um, propulsion unit that's, it's a gridded iron thruster. I don't know what the power is on it, but it's, it's powered by iodine. That's the propellant which iodine is a solid most of the time. So it, it's a really interesting one because the way they've done it, most electric propulsion, we have like a pipe which runs to the back. Like you pipe it, it's a gas. You flow it out of a bunch of holes and it, you spit it out. This is a piece of, it's just a chunk of iodine sitting behind all your grids and they just have a heater that sublimates the top layer. And they, their flow rate isn't controlled by a valve, it's controlled by heater power. Um, and that flew really, really well from what I hear. Um, there's a lot of interest in iodine, actually, because I think it's got incredibly similar performance to xenon. But because it's not a noble gas and it's a solid at room temperature, a lot of people avoid it because you, you know, adding a heater is, is complexity and complexity is the enemy in space. You, you want as few points of failure as possible. Um, but, so that's a really novel one. I know um, Impulsion, their FEEP, which is like a field, emission, electron, something, propulsion. I think that's right. I'll be wrong. Is um, It's a bunch of these really thin needles, and they act as like capillaries for, I think it's indium, and they accelerate that really well. So indium, again, is, is a sort of a liquid metal. So using liquid metals as a propulsion, um, yeah, so there, there is a lot of really interesting stuff happening in this field, especially because the last 30, 40 years has been dominated by the SPT-100, which is just a, the most standard Russian Hall effect thruster that's very good. And it's kind of the mentality of it's not broken, don't fix it. So it's really fun to see these sort of these new concepts coming to field, especially um, so Hall effect thrusters, they use electron impact ionization. A lot of these other ones are using different forms of ionization. So you can have radio frequency where you just blast it with microwaves and it ionizes. And they're just using that. I think that's a completely valid form. Um, there's also electrospray. We do a lot of electrospray research at Southampton. Um, and the way that works is it's, I'm not a fan of it because it doesn't glow, but you basically have this porous glass and you soak your propellant in it as a fluid and you, it's a, much like a grid iron thruster. You have these little grids that you supply a really high voltage to, and it pulls out these particles from this liquid and accelerates them to really high velocities. Um, so there's a lot of stuff happening with those because people were starting to look at these ionic liquids like um, Han. I think it's a couple of ones. I, I, can't, I don't know what the, the full name for Han is, but it's basically this very long particle 
name where you have two dominant um, molecules in the liquid, both which are ions, but because they're both ions of opposite polarities, they pair up. So it's an overall neutral liquid, but when you start stripping it apart, when you apply these really high voltages, you get some really interesting interactions happening there. That can be quite useful. That's nice. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a really great time to do <laughs> this, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, shall we move on from the more technical side to... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, is there any advice you could give our young listeners about careers? And where can we go in this wild, wild world? Um, I know that one, if you want... I know a lot of people who do not like working at these legacy firms. And when I say that, I mean like uh, they're BAE, Airbus, Rolls-Royce, stuff like this. Because when you join them, you're put on a project with a thousand people and you become an expert of this one valve or this one component, which to be fair, you do become the world leading expert on this valve. Doesn't feel very impactful to be a world leading expert on one valve that only exists for this one mission. So it can be quite draining just emotionally to do that job. Um, I, from what I've heard from other people, because I haven't personally experienced this, I've basically stayed in academia beyond doing contract work within academia for companies. But so the, from what I've heard from other people is, is I would recommend, especially if you're looking at space, there's so many startups, smaller companies, even just from a financial aspect, getting in early on, you've got a good chance that you're being paid in equity. So every ounce of effort you put towards this company, one improves the company's um, value, which improves the value of your equity that you earn. So if you had stock options at any point, you're not just working for the company that pays you, you're literally making your investment more valuable. And this happens quite you know, more frequently at small companies. Like no, no intern at Airbus is getting equity. But if you're you know, the first 200 people through the door for another company, maybe, maybe that'd be the case. And also it's, just, it's more gratifying work because you are working in a place where you can see your, Im your impact a lot more readily. Um, but also I'd recommend people look at PhDs more seriously. I don't think it's this, I don't think there should be this kind of, I would say stigma, but error about it. Like I've met a lot of PhD students now and I, they're just the average student. It, I don't think you have to be, you know, some genius to consider doing a PhD. It's just a three-year degree where you put a lot of effort into one thing. Um, it, it probably doesn't hurt to be a genius, but I don't think it should be a requirement. And uh, yeah, do you have any like book or show that changed your life and that you would recommend to anyone interested in space? I, if you're interested in rockets and you think that's something that you're really interested in, you want to get a Oh, you know, a better understanding than the average person. I mean, there's a there's a book that's very good called I think it's it called Propulsion. It's not my show. It's called Ignition. I'll go grab it. Give me a second. So 
Pixels. Uh, John D. Clark's Ignition. Uh, the filter's not going to like it. It's basically just the history of chemical propulsion in the States. Um, it's got a forward by Isaac Asimov, if that means anything to anyone these days. But I, I found it interesting. But it's not super relevant to what I do. Um, I don't think it really motivated me to it. The most thing that motivated me into engineering was probably like Star Trek or something bizarre when I was a child. Um, and like, is there one that like shapes you to be the person that you are today or are you not that much like a book reader? Or is there a show that you really like that shaped you into the person you are today? Um, funny enough, a lot of my interests outside of work fall very far from engineering. Um, I quite like to have my, you know, sort of academic pursuits quite separate, if that makes sense. It's sort of, yeah, it's kind of the case of where I haven't completely inverted my life with being an engineer. You know, the second I'm, you know, it hits 5 p.m. and I'm like, ah, I'm clocking out. I'm going to go home and, you know, read whatever I want. Well, um, thank you so much for that. With that, I think we come to the end of the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Thomas. That was, That's no that was... I'm so sorry. I feel like I've spoken the whole time. Oh, no, no. We, we That's your it. job. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, we, we absolutely loved it. It was, it, it was great. And also, Fedor, we saw you show the book. Nice. Do you have it as well? That's excellent. Yeah. I got it. <laughs> nice. Well, um, yeah, thank you so much, Thomas. And um, well, this was, this was great. And this was wonderful. Thank you very you, much. We wish you all the best. And hopefully we'll be speaking many more times during your PhD. Hopefully. Very good. Well,